The central point to this letter is you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Got you. We were just uh, with our grandchildren uh, for a week, uh, granddaughters ages four, six, and eight. And the second night we were there, I was cleaning up the kitchen while Mary was putting them to bed. The division of labor it takes. It takes being young to really raise your kids, doesn't it? But uh, we did it with a double duty. And Mary came out kind of bleary-eyed. She said, they were really, really hard to get to sleep. They were excited, I guess, that we were there. And I said, you should have just called me. And the next night, as she did call me, and I went in, Charlotte, our, she turned four while we were down there, was just wide awake and stubborn and would not lie down. And I said, Charlotte, lie down and I'll scratch your back. And she laid down and I started scratching her back. And I said, let's just pray before we go to sleep. And I just prayed until I saw her. It's like, uh, like Mary Poppins. When Mary Poppins says, stay awake, and the kids go to sleep, it just worked perfectly. I came out to Mary, and I said, I'm a preacher. I know how to put people to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that I don't this morning, but this is a much deeper level, you know that, of, of spiritual deadness and he who has the seven spirits in his, uh, who holds the seven spirits of God, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Jesus you know, it said in John 14 and in John 16, as he explained to his disciples the night before he went to the cross, he said, I'll go to the Father and I'll ask the Father and he will send another paraclete, the, the Holy Spirit, to remind you of everything I have said and to lead you into all truth. In one of those places, he says, I will send the Spirit. When we express our understanding of the Trinity, we say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. They together send the Spirit. He who has the Spirit sends him to us to give us life. We who were born dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive in Christ. That is the work of the Spirit and his call to us in our hearts to faith in Jesus Christ. So this is a message from Jesus, a revelation of Jesus through John to the church at Sardis and to all the church that we would learn from their example. And he says, wake up. You can have a reputation of being alive and be dead. Jesus said that there will be those who at judgment, will, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they will be astonished. They thought they were secure. Now, this is interesting because the city of Sardis was built on a, on a hill, and the sides of that hill were so steep that they thought that they were impregnable. They had a lower city down in the plain, and they didn't even build walls around it where they would be uh, under siege or, or attack. People just go up the hill to the top, and they thought that they were safe. The city was conquered twice, first by Cyrus, king of Persia, in 549 B.C. The debate may be debated, uh, the date itself may be debated a little bit because as I looked into this, I, I saw another source saying it was 547 or uh, Cyrus laid siege to the city and conquered it in 546 B.C. That doesn't matter. The point is this. 
They were conquered because they were lackadaisical. They thought they were safe and secure just because of the geography. And they didn't have either the city was asleep and didn't post guards, or the guards themselves literally fell asleep on the watch because they thought they were safe and secure. Again, in around uh, 2012, 2013 BC, Antiochus uh, conquered the city for the same reason. You'd think they would have learned the lesson the first time, right? No, it was over 300 years later. How many of you think about lessons of, of military security from the Revolutionary War? Maybe you're a history buff and you love to study that, but we don't go around thinking about that. They had fallen asleep at the watch again as a city and were conquered again. What a geographical lesson uh, to be an illustration for them spiritually. They thought they were safe and secure with God, but they were really dead. It's one of the realizations we should have as Christians uh, to know that just being in church, we know it to be true, just being in church doesn't make you all right with God. The most dangerous circumstance is when you think you're okay. You don't even have the zeal to guard against heresy. You don't have the zeal for worship to be compromising with the, uh, the, the pagan idols around. You just think you're fine with God when you really are not trusting in him. Receiving him as Savior and Lord means actively following him. It's a change of heart that shows itself in fruit. To think you're all right with God because you're a Christian, and then you stand before Jesus and find, wait a minute, He's looking at me the way he looks at the world that he came to judge. That would be awful, not awesome, awful. So we should hear this message. Now we're going to spend half of our time in the supplementary passage and in, in a couple of other supplementary passages to get the idea of where this notion of Jesus coming like a thief in the night uh, where it comes from, and what it means. First, I would like for you to, to turn to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus himself is the one who started this uh, illustration of coming like a thief. We'll start reading in verse 36. The question in chapter 24, the beginning of the chapter uh, that Jesus' disciples bring to Jesus is, Tell us, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Obviously, we don't have time to cover the whole chapter. We'll get down to his direct answer to that question. When will it be, and what will be the signs? In verse 36, Jesus says, No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Now, in his divine nature, he was omniscient. He always knew. In his human nature, he did not avail himself of his divine nature to be exempt from having to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. This was not something he chose to tap into his divine nature to answer their question. He just said, no one knows, not even the Son, but only the Father. And as we go into these next verses, I want to acknowledge if you've never been through this before, this may be a great upheaval for you in your mind because the most popular view 
among Christians who are committed to Christ and committed to his word is that this passage is going to talk about a secret rapture of the church. The church will be taken out of the world and the rest of the world will be left in tribulation. That's the most popular view. If you haven't been through this uh, challenge that I'm going to give you before, then you might be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, I thought everybody else was liberal that didn't have that view. I just don't think that's what this passage teaches. It's the reverse. It's the Christians who are saved from wrath and the others taken away in judgment. Why do I say that? Well, let's read this passage. As it was in the days of Noah, I'm in verse 37, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until, well, let's stop there. They were going on with normal life. They didn't see great apocalyptic signs that got them all scared. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They looked at Noah building that ark for year after year after year, and he was preaching a sermon, judgment is coming, and they thought it was silly that he would build an ark out in the middle of a desert, and he, was, he must have been explaining to them, God is going to judge the world by flood. I'm building this ark. You're all invited. And they just thought he was crazy man. As it was in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, giving and giving, uh, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Who's taken away in that judgment? It's Noah and his family in the ark that were saved. Those who didn't believe, who refused to believe about God and his judgment, who were taken away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Instead of it being the Christian taken up in their secret rapture, it's one will be taken away by God's judgment. That's the way it was in the flood with Noah. And the other saved, left for life. You see that? When, I, when somebody pointed this out to me long, long ago, I had to just take a, take a step back. I had read our version of the Left Behind series. It's like a thief in the night in the twinkling of an eye. I was all into those books, and my father saw me reading those, and he just said, you know, people think that when Jesus comes, it's going to be a secret uh, coming, and he's going to take the church away. When I read the Bible, it, it says that he's going to come with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. I wonder what they do with that, and then he just walked away. I thought, I wonder, what do they do with that? And then I kept enjoying the novel, but it kept me from settling into that's quite the understanding of the Bible. He did not want to, to pull me away from those that were feeding my soul with devotion to Christ. I was going to groups that were uh, teaching this kind of uh, eschatology. 
And he didn't want to wean me away from other Christians because they were helping me and feeding my heart to follow Christ. It was a great parent's touch, not to say how wrong they all were so that I would separate from those that were helping me grow as a Christian. But he kept me from settling into that, this idea that the church is going to have us be secretly raptured and will escape tribulation. Instead, this passage says, the church will be left when God comes in judgment and takes away everyone else. That's what happened in the flood. So shall it be on the day of the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. I learned on my guitar, Larry Norman's, I wish you'd all been ready. I loved that song. Can't sing it in church for me because it's not quite what this passage is saying. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Wake up. Stay awake. The verse in our passage in the letter to Sardis is a continual uh, verb. Stay awake would be a better uh, translation. But it's not just stay awake as though we're already awake. It's you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Stay awake. We get that. You parents get it if your kids or maybe your spouse has been nodding off in this sermon. Stay awake. It's, it's really wake up. Randy Pope tells the story on uh, Frank Barker that they were at a missions conference in some church that they both were, were going to. And uh, Frank, with his plane trip and his, as he grew older, he often uh, nodded off. And he was nodding off in the middle of the guy's sermon. And Randy was sitting next to him. And he jabbed him and he said, Frank, they want you to pray. And Frank stood up and started praying right in the middle of his sermon. Love that story. Stay awake. It, it means wake up. So I think our translations are faithful to the sense of the text. So Jesus planted this idea of coming like a thief in the night. Peter remembered it in um, the Second Peter, chapter three. It, it, it's really almost more uh, uh, helpful to us today. Uh, than it, it was um, in the first century, because it's been 2,000 years. In chapter 3, verse 3, Peter says, First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. I could just hear Peter thinking about Jesus teaching them what he taught them in Matthew 24. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, one, the heavens existed, creation of the earth was formed out of water and by water. Two, by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed, the flood that Jesus had referred to. And three, by application, 
by that same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. If Jesus didn't know the day of his coming in his incarnation, uh, and the disciples didn't know the day of his coming, the message of the Bible is he is coming. We should be ready every day. We don't know when it's going to happen. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you and not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's a difficult verse because we know that God doesn't, we don't believe in universalism. The God just automatically saves everyone. It's only those who believe in Christ. So this verse could mean he has more of his elect to save in future generations. If he had answered, uh, if he had come in the first generation of Christians, we wouldn't even be here. We wouldn't exist. Or it could be revealing God's heart that he doesn't delight in judgment. He delights in showing mercy and grace and love. But his holiness demands that sin be punished if we're not in Christ. It, there are different ways. We're not going to spend any more time on that verse. But look at the next one. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. I'm reminded of my father saying, when he reads the Bible, that day is, it's a noisy day. You're not going to miss it. It's not going to be secret. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. That's Jesus. Peter, who heard Jesus you know, teach that in, in Matthew 40. And then Paul, who was not with the disciples, but who received directly from Jesus the same message that was confirmed by the apostles after Paul had received it. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, after that wonderful, wonderful description of the rapture in chapter 4. I do believe in the rapture. It's just at the end of time, we will be caught up to be with Christ in the air as he comes to judge the world, just as the ark caught up Noah and lifted them above the, him and his family above the flood and saved them. As God judged the world, we will be in Christ and be saved from the judgment to come. That's at the end of chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, Paul writes, Now, brothers, about the times and dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Is this a sneak thief who comes in the house and steals something and the owners of the house wake up the next day and all the Christians are gone from the world? Although that makes great movies and, and books. What do you do if you're on the plane and the pilot's a Christian? That, that kind of idea. But this is the way Jesus, Peter, and now Paul describes Jesus coming like a thief. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The people in Sardis knew that kind of security. They were in the fluent city. They were at the, they were at the cross, crossroads for five major roads. They had plenty of provision, and they were up on top of this hill where they could have peace and safety. Nobody could take them. 
they said, peace and safety. And twice in history, human conquerors, Cyrus and Antiochus, had come upon them suddenly and conquered them with destruction coming upon them suddenly. What an apt uh, letter to this particular city. So let's turn back uh, to our letter in, in Revelation. I think with that context, we'll understand this easily and understand it better. To the angel of the church in Sardis, you still have in your bulletins the, uh, the form of the letter before you. To the, these leaders, this type of church, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. We've already talked about that. It's the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars, the seven stars are the angels of the churches, the leaders. It's like the, to the captains of these ships. The captains define the personality of the ship. To this, this type of church, God still holds us in his hands. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Keep watch. Stay awake. You're falling asleep. Actually, worse than falling asleep, you're asleep. You're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Mary and I have different approaches to plant life. Uh, we have a, a kind of, of jasmine that grew up over this topiary, and and one went one uh, fall it froze before I got it into the garage. I didn't know it couldn't last the winter out there, and it died. My approach to plant life is I love to nurture it back to life. Mary comes in judgment immediately. You just have to get a new thing. Well, I put it in the garage, and it's little, tiny little thing. Uh, green at the bottom was still there. I've got it back six feet tall. Now, Mary could tell me all my failures on, <laughs> on re-nurturing plant life, too. Lots of times I'll be patient with something for several years as I give up. I think of that plant when I think of this uh, church in Sardis. As a church, it was dead, but there were a few. We'll find there were a few. So when it says strengthen what remains, the gospel's still there. There's still witness uh, there. There are those who would say, you don't just say you go to church and try to be good. See, that's, that's the majority of American Christianity. This may not describe this church. This letter may not be addressed to this church or our denomination, but I think it could be addressed to the church in America where the vast majority just go to church and try to be good. In some ways, the church in Sardis was being dead, was so innocuous that Satan didn't even attack it with heresies. They weren't zealous enough for Satan to be concerned about. Satan didn't uh, attack it with uh, sexual immorality and compromises. He thought, this is good. They think they're all right with God. When they get to judgment, Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Let them be asleep. Don't wake them up. Let them be content. So we, they were fluent. They had everything they needed. They were nice people. That's probably the best description of them and the majority of the American church. Remember, therefore, 
what you have received and heard. Remember, it's not just recall it to mind. It's you know it. Remember it. Be mindful of the gospel you first received. What does it mean to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Does it just roll off your tongue and you have no sense of depth and understanding of the, the new heart, the desire to follow Christ that, that flows from that? Is it just a platitude? Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. After reading the other passages, this should just leap off the page that much of the church, Jesus will come and judge the way he judges the world because they're really not a part of him at all. They're just dead. When we realize that possibility, we can ask ourselves, do I go to a church that is a live church? It, has, it really believes the gospel, but I, I feel good about myself. I, I meet nice people here, but would God say to you, depart from me, I really, I really don't know you. We can apply it uh, individually that way. Um, and a whole church can become that way. When Jesus says, I'll come like a thief, and you'll not know at what time I will come to you. He's saying, you're part of those outside the ark who will be swept away by the flood. Don't think just being in church will keep you safe. It's only being in Christ that keeps you safe from judgment. Yet, you have a few people in Sardis who have not sold their clothes. Last week, I mentioned the commentary, a commentary that I worked from, and and it's been very helpful to me. I have some small quibbles about what he says about uh, the, the letters to the churches that I would think be friendly discussions. If I could sit down with this author, we could talk. It's not like, oh, he's on one side and I'm on another. He thinks that the believers were in the majority in the church at Pergamum and the church at Thyatira. Here they're in the minority. I, th I think a little differently than that. In uh, the church, at Pergamum, the Christians, the real believers, were in leadership enough, they were in authority enough, in control enough, to where they were responsible for stopping the false teaching. So they needed to repent of, of tolerating it, not a, of allowing it. In Thyatira, whether the numbers were a majority or not, they were not in leadership. They could not change things. So the message to Thyatira was just hold on. I won't place any other burden on you. Hold on to what you have. And so since they couldn't change, they weren't in leadership, Jesus was saying, I'll take care of them. I'll come and judge them. So I think they were in a minority or at least not in leadership in Thyatira. Here, the church is basically dead. It's not even a significant minority. It's just a few that are left. There's a wonder and grace in that because I think there are probably a lot of people that are Christians in the churches in America and in the world that are truly regenerate, that are true believers. The church may be uh, teaching uh, heresies, but these people have been touched by the Holy Spirit, confused by the doctrines of their church, or they're truly regenerate and the rest of the church just looks down on them. They're so outside that it's not even a significant minority. 
but just a few that Jesus mentions them. Enough to write a letter to that kind of church to say to them, they will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. This doesn't mean they believe a different gospel, that they earned their salvation by being pure themselves. How are we dressed in white before God at judgment? We're dressed in white by being given the righteousness of Christ and our sins being imputed to him and he pays for them on the cross. Though our sins were as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow in Christ. It's not that they earned their salvation. This is just an allusion to those who receive that white robe at the wedding of the, ba uh, the banquet of the wedding when Christ comes again. We receive it from him. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. Here, this letter is talking about you. It's not just the few in Sardis. It's anyone who belongs to Christ, whose sins are imputed to Christ. That means accounted to him. And he's covered them by paying the penalty of your sin. And he's given you his righteousness. He has made you worthy. All those will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge him before my father and his angels. What a promise to those who feel so small, so few, if the church has gone so bad that it's just called dead. I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. Jesus won't lose a single one of us whom the father has given to him and for whom he has paid uh, the penalty of sin, to whom he has given the white robe of his righteousness. He can't lose us. Now, we can stumble and fall as David did with Bathsheba, but David was convicted of his sin. We can blow it big time. Our security is not in ourselves. Our security is in the ark, Jesus himself. He who has an ear to hear, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you that you have opened the doors of heaven to us through the Lord Jesus. Through what is signified in the Lord's Supper that we are just about to celebrate, his bodily crucifixion his spiritual bearing your wrath poured out upon our sin. And you have accounted to us his perfect righteousness. That's what makes us worthy. Father, let us not just profess it with our lips that we belong to him. Let us not rest in the shallow gospel that is so innocuous that Satan doesn't even bother to try to deceive us with heresies or lead us off into uh, immoral sins. He just lets us sit in our deadness thinking, I'm okay with God. I'm secure because I go to church and I'm a good person. That is not the gospel. And Jesus will come like a thief in the night with sudden destruction at a time we least expect it. Father, let us be driven to the cross by this letter to Sardis. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask the elders to come forward at this time.